Think. The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think. Create. Explore. Celebrate. London, England. April the 2nd, 1800. Sir William Portney, member of the British House of Commons, proposes a bill to ban the sport of ball baiting by dogs. It's the first time anything of the kind has been discussed in any modern parliament. And his fellow members are, frankly, astonished. Portney puts it that... The practice is cruel and inhuman. It draws together idle and disorderly persons. It creates many disorderly and mischievous proceedings. And it furnishes examples of profligacy and cruelty. He is shouted down. Future Prime Minister George Canning declares that The amusement inspires courage and produces a nobleness of sentiment and elevation of mind. Parliament rejects the bill as below the dignity of the House. So, the question we'll be asking in this episode is, how do we get from that flat-out rejection to the passage in 1822 of the cruel treatment of Cadillac, known more popularly as Martin's Act, sponsored by Richard Martin, a.k.a. Humanity Dick. It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation. We still have a legal system dominated by people who believe that anthropocentrism is right, that it is proper to value humans over animals. Protests, campaigns, petitions, they've all got a place, but there are far too few legal challenges. And yet these two men managed to actually get majorities for the first legislation to actually protect animals from cruelty. It was a colossal achievement. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Martin's Act at 200. I'm Dr Alex Lockwood, senior lecturer at the University of Sunderland, and I'm fascinated by our relationship with other animals. In this six-part audio documentary, I'll be your guide to two centuries of the animal protection movement across the Anglophone world to help us learn from the history, evaluate the present, and imagine the future of human-animal relations. All of this in the context of the emergencies of the Anthropocene, climate catastrophe, biodiversity loss and species extinction. The series, supported by the Culture and Animals Foundation, operates under a simple premise that to change our relations to other species is perhaps the most important key to unlock a salvageable future for all. It's my belief that all beings have a birthright to flourish and that we have, in fact, come closer than we know to making this a reality. There have been clues strewn along our path in humankind's history, if only we could see them. So, join me, legal scholars, activists, writers, artists and other experts who have dedicated their lives to protecting animals, as we go on a journey from the 18th century to the present and 30 years into the future to ask, what is it we can do to end the injustices that animals suffer? In episode one, we explored the political and social context in which Richard Martin lived and the causes he championed. In this episode, we'll talk more about the act itself. What brought Martin to pursue legislation for animals so vigorously? And how did he persuade the rest of Westminster to make it happen? As soon as a man, a robust, flamboyant uh, man with a reputation for being a very effective dualist, raises an issue, it makes an impact uh, and I think this had a great impression upon the, his fellow MPs in the House of Commons. That's Richard Ryder, former chair of the RSPCA and coiner of the term speciesism. There are stories that those who opposed him, the sort of um, 
members of the fox hunting community at the time would make sort of animal noises in the House of Commons as soon as he began to speak. Uh, and Martin would sort of stop in the middle of his speech and say, would the cows put up their hands? Or would the sheep indicate who they are? Because there were people bleating and making animal noises. So, of course, nobody dared own up because they knew that what would follow would be a challenge to a duel. Which is not something we would encourage for politics today, as Ryder agrees. So it was, it was a bit 18th century and old-fashioned in the way that it conducted, and we wouldn't approve of it today. But it made it stick. It made an impression upon people. And that's why it, it, it got through and happened. But let's not leap too far ahead just yet. Back in 1800, Pulteney didn't threaten a duel like Martin did, but he did have friends. His efforts in the House of Commons were supported in the House of Lords by Lord Thomas Erskine, the lawyer in Martin's divorce case, who we met in episode one. Another supporter, an old Harrow school friend of Martin, was the Member of Parliament Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who spoke in favour of Pulteney's bill. Sheridan, a playwright, drew on his acting skills to address the House. He condemned bull-baiting as... Inhuman, cruel, disgraceful and beastly. It could excite nothing but brutality, ferociousness and cowardice, and must debase the mind, deaden the feelings and extinguish every spark of courage and benevolence. It wasn't enough, and the bill was voted down. Another effort, in 1802, by the Member of Parliament John Dent, failed by just seven votes, with Martin back in his native Galway fighting for re-election. Pulteney died in 1805, and it wasn't until 1809 that another failed attempt to challenge animal cruelty was made, this time by Erskine himself. We'll come to Erskine's effort later on, but the fact that Martin's old school friend and new acquaintances in the Houses of Parliament were expressing similar sentiments about animals emboldened Martin and lit the fuse for his imagination to ignite. He needed imagination as well as strategy, because what was being attempted was something completely new. It's important to remember it because it was the first piece of animal welfare legislation passed by an elected government. That's Kim Stallwood, former executive director of PETA in the US, independent scholar and author, and a lifelong advocate for animals. OK, now having said that, it's animal welfare, not animal rights, and, you know, how democratic was the elected government. But nonetheless, it wasn't a dictate by some dictator, it was, you know, it was a piece of legislation that went through the political process as it stood at that time. And there were multiple attempts prior to that to get legislation passed and, and they didn't succeed. So this was the first piece of legislation that specifically uh, recognised the suffering that animals could endure and that it became a transgression to, to, to inflict suffering on them. There was a significant gap of time between Pulteney, Dent and Erskine's earlier efforts and Martin's attempts to further his convictions for animals through legislation. So let's meet again in 1818. The last decade has been full of ups and downs for Richard Martin and Great Britain and Ireland. The Napoleonic Wars, Catholic reform, and for Martin, more debt, family tensions and a six-year absence from Parliament. But in 1818, he re-enters politics after another successful, if corrupt, campaign in Galway and wastes no time renewing his acquaintance with Lord Erskine and a new friendship with a farmer, a man called John Lawrence, who'd written a treatise two decades earlier calling for rights for animals. Martin and his wife Harriet also moved to London permanently. Now ensconced in Parliament, Erskine and Martin conclude that outright protection for animals is not going to be voted for. 
What they need, they think, is a foot in the door and some clever manoeuvring. And it took three years to plan. By 1821, they were ready. On May 17th that year, Martin sold the House of Commons a dummy. He told the House he'd been handed a petition by a group of stagecoach owners who were complaining that they had no redress against reckless employees who damaged their valuable horses. In fact, the law did protect the owners, but no one in the Commons noticed, so Martin was given leave to introduce a bill. Erskine played his hand, likewise bamboozling his fellow lords, and the bill progressed. It was in the Commons on June 1st, 1821, that the bill was broadened to define the animals protected, which was now horses and... Mares, geldings, mules, asses, cows, heifers, spears, oxen, sheep and other cattle. In a sparsely attended commons, the legislation was renamed the Ill Treatment of Cattle Bill and passed by three votes. It nearly fell at what is called the second reading, when the opposition noted that... It would only be a matter of time before someone tried to protect dogs and even cats. The vote this time was 26-4 and 26 against. Following precedence, the Speaker of the House was obliged to vote in favour of progress. The bill passed the second reading. Then Martin showed his skill as a politician with a PR stunt. On June the 16th, 1821, he brought to the Magistrates' Court in Guildhall two men he'd arrested in London for acts of cruelty to a horse. Even though he knew the law was powerless to prosecute them, the story was duly reported the next day in the Times newspaper by a journalist friend of Martin, under the headline, Cruelty to Animals. It was this incident Martin recounted at the bill's third reading on June the 29th. Supported by others in the House, including the abolitionist William Wilberforce, the bill passed with a majority of 24. It then moved, as all parliamentary bills must do, to the House of Lords. Where it failed, Erskine could not persuade his opposition the bill and Martin returned to square one. And even if Martin had wanted to try again, he couldn't, as Parliament had been suspended, on this occasion by King George IV for his coronation. Martin's act was dormant, for now. While the king is being crowned, let's take the opportunity to rewind a little and fill in one more important gap. There's another key moment in the history of this law. It shapes Martin's strategy, and it was brought about by someone we now know as Martin's friend, but who's often overlooked by the legend of Humanity Dick. It's time to get to know Lord Thomas Erskine. He was very straightforward in his arguments for animal rights. That's Richard Ryder again. But where did Erskine get such progressive ideas from? He tended to follow the thoughts of the poets, people like Cooper and Percy Bysshe Shelley, uh, even Byron, they were all very strongly pro-animal. And then, of course, the great Jeremy Bentham, who was the leading political philosopher, really, of the day and is still influencing, I think, more and more moral philosophy today. He was well-read then, which isn't surprising because Thomas Erskine, 1st Baron Erskine and Lord High Chancellor of Great Britain, was born into privilege. He served in the Navy but wrote a pamphlet on the abuses prevailing in the armed forces foreshadowing his lifelong preoccupation with injustice. He moved into politics as a Whig or a Liberal, but Erskine's well-regarded oratorical skills did not transfer and he lost his seat. This defeat at least allowed him to excel as a lawyer, including defending Thomas Paine's rights of man from seditious libel. As we learnt in episode one, Erskine defended John Petrie when he committed adultery with Richard Martin's first wife, Elizabeth. Although Martin and Erskine were on opposite sides of that legal skirmish, 
Erskine's integrity and honesty impressed Martin, and they became friends. For it was not only the rights of man that Erskine wished to protect. He'd long been fond of animals, especially, and history records, a Newfoundland dog called Toss, who accompanied him to chambers, as did a macaw, a goose, and incredibly, although perhaps symbolically, two leeches. On May the 15th, 1809, and now in the House of Lords, Erskine introduced his single piece of legislation, the Cruelty to Animals Bill. His speech that day offers words strikingly similar to today's arguments for animal rights, if not for all animals. Like Martin will a few years later, Erskine appeals to the House's humanity and its role in shaping morality. But Erskine goes much further than Martin in his defence of animals. Animals are considered as property only, to destroy or to abuse them from malice to the proprietor or with an intention injurious to his interest in them is criminal. But the animals themselves are without protection. The law regards them not substantively. They have no rights. It's the first speech in a modern political house of government in favour of rights for animals, for the animals' sake. Yet not all animals. Erskine is quick to rule out applying it to wild animals, yet grounds for legislating against wanton cruelty to domesticated animals, claims Erskine, is a proposition which no man living can deny without denying the whole foundation of our duties. Going further than Primate 40 years earlier and drawing on Bentham, Erskine puts forward a claim for animals that has barely been matched in politics over the intervening 213 years. Almost every sense bestowed upon man is equally bestowed upon them. Seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking. The sense of pain and pleasure, the passions of love and anger. Sensibilities to kindness and pangs from unkindness and neglect are inseparable characteristics of their natures as much as of our own. Humankind holds animals' protection in trust, he says, one that men in particular must honour. It's not that animals are equal with humans, Erskine continues, but that the trust given to man by God to protect his creation makes them due moral consideration. Their rights, subservient as they are, ought to be as sacred as our own. His aim, he says, is to make every human bosom a sanctuary against cruelty. Echoing the images seen 60 years earlier in Hogarth's Four Stages of Cruelty, which I talked about in episode one, Erskine draws attention to the plight of overworked horses and asses, driven to death simply to carry harmless travellers galloping over our roads for neither good nor evil, but to fill up the dreary blank in unoccupied life. Erskine sees the maltreatment of animals as wicked, and with his experience as a lawyer, argues that no magistrate will be confused as to the difference between working animals hard and abusing or neglecting them. Erskine's argument in 1809 must have moved his listeners, because the bill passed the Lords. However, Erskine's bill failed in the Commons. The Member of Parliament, William Wyndham, argued that a law against cruelty to animals was incompatible with fox hunting and horse racing. That is, cruelty could not be legislated against without robbing the ruling classes of their blood sports. Eventually, Erskine's bill was introduced in the Commons and passed as what is called a statute, which means it has no power to be enforced. Let's fast forward again. 13 years to 1822. King George IV has been fully crowned, and Richard Martin, who came so close in 1821, is back again at the age of 68 to take up the cause of animals and give us the world's first animal protection law. Martin has learnt from the successes and failures of 1821. So what does he do differently? Here's Helen Cowie, 
professor of early modern history at the University of York, suggesting that this new attempt turns emphatically to the impact of cruelty to animals on the moral standards of visible public life in the streets of the growing cities. I think to some extent it's because he puts the focus by 1822, and to some extent this was true of Erskine's bill as well, not so much on bull baiting and bear baiting, which were the focus of the initial bits of attempted legislation in, in 1800 and, and 1801, but he puts the focus on the cruel treatment of, of cattle and, and horses. So this is basically the abuse of animals in the street, which are being driven driven to market. Again, this is caused by you know, increased increasing arrival of, of capitalism and needing to bring lots of animals into London for, for consumption. So by putting the focus on that, this means that the people that are generally doing the cruelty tend to be the lower classes. So sort of the drovers, the people who are forcing these animals into the market. And to some extent, I think that makes it easier for elite people who, who did engage in things like, like fox hunting uh, to vote this through because it's, it's really aimed largely at, at the lower classes, even though they are working in that way because of the capitalistic system, and, and you could argue they're victims of it as well. As Cowie notes, Martin leverages the feeling inside the Houses of Parliament that their job is to control the base instincts and behaviour of the lower classes. But having said that, the class element, it's, it's also notable that a big, a big part of the opposition to these bills earlier on had been the idea that it was effectively a bunch of, of fox hunters trying to sort of curtail the the entertainments of the poor with things like like um, bull baiting. So there is this kind of class dynamic at play here. This class dynamic is why Martin decides to engage a group of clergymen to petition their members of parliament. These included the Reverend Henry Crow, vicar of Buckingham, an author of a book titled Zoophilos, in which he documents several instances of extreme animal cruelty. To soften up the honourable members with the detail of the gory horror of animal cruelty, Martin shares a story from the notorious Westminster Pit, only walking distance from Parliament. He reads a graphic account from a recent event. Jack O'Macaco, the celebrated monkey, will this day fight Tom Cribb's white bitch puss. Jacko has fought many battles with some of the first dogs of the day and has baited them all. And he hereby offers to fight any dog in England of double his own weight. Both animals died a gruesome, painful death. Ignoring pleas from fellow members of Parliament to desist, Martin continues, describing his visit to... Where a bear and at least 50 badgers were kept in appalling conditions in the interest of entertainment. Stunned into silence, the MPs passed the bill at its first reading. Martin then times the second reading for midnight on May the 24th, following a tedious debate on military pensions. Despite some opposition, the second reading passes 29 votes to 18. The third reading is scheduled for June the 2nd. It passes without a vote. Now Erskine has to do his work in the Lords. With the support of the clergyman and better prepared than the year before, Erskine sees the bill through three readings, the final one on July the 18th. With a happy crowned king feeling no threat from the Irish, the monarch is only too happy to show his compassion and gives the bill royal assent on July the 22nd, 1822. As Peter Phillips, author of the biography Humanity Dick, puts it, all animal rights law in the world stems from that auspicious day. Not resting on his laurels, the day after the Bill Gaines Royal Assent as law, Richard Humanity Dick Martin makes his first arrest under the law. Walking unaccompanied into Smithfield, the largest meat market and slaughterhouse in Europe, he collars a worker there for abusing a cow. 
and this is how Richard Martin, ably supported by Lord Erskine and others, brought to bear legal protection for animals. And everything goes well for animals from there on after, doesn't it? Well, obviously not. Let's return to the beginning of episode one, shall we? And Martin's attempt, just two years later in 1824, to persuade the same parliament to set up a committee, not much, just to set up a committee to investigate banning bull and bear baiting. Remembering the tactics of 1822, Martin again paints a gruesome picture of Westminster Pit and its many continuing abuses of animals. Martin draws the image of horrors witnessed there. To get his committee to discuss baiting, Martin knows he needs to make a distinction between the cruel sports of the rabble and the field sports of educated gentlemen. A warning here if you have a vivid imagination or a delicate stomach for hypocrisy. For as Martin puts it, Bear baiting and badger baiting are essentially different from fox hunting and shooting. The badger is brought out not to be killed at once, but to be baited day after day till he is torn to pieces by the dogs. It is impossible to put this on a footing with shooting or fox hunting. Martin surveys the house. He would just state one case which occurred at the Westminster pit. A fight between an unlucky bear and a bulldog. The lower jaw of the bear was torn off and he was not then killed and put out of pain but allowed to languish in torment. The dog had its jugular artery cut and died. The wretched bear survives combat and is brought out month after month. It lives two years. Its eyes are out, its lips torn off. The keeper says it was necessary to shoot it at last as there was nothing left for the dogs to lay hold of. Martin treads carefully. If this thing were done publicly, if the animals were torn to pieces and tortured in the open streets, the nuisance would be greater. But the annoyance was great to any person of humanity to know that at a certain hour these horrible cruelties were going on. If this were to be called a right, a right should not be allowed to exist so inconsistent with the happiness of others. But the members of the House of Commons aren't having it. So Robert Heron, whom you may remember from episode one, owned a menagerie, opposes it. It trenches upon the amusements of the people, and I do not think that they ought to be trenched upon unnecessarily. But his real reason for disapproval quickly reveals itself. I cannot believe that the higher orders are cruel in their sports, or that the lower orders, who imitated those above them, are cruel in theirs. If Martin were to get his committee, that is, where would it stop? The honourable member who brought this forward has either gone too far or not far enough. Heron decides to bait Martin himself. He asks Martin... What he thinks of cockfighting, or what he thinks of another kind of sport in which I do not know whether the honourable member indulges, namely that of torturing an oyster by eating it alive. And here, perhaps, is the first parliamentary rejection of vegan values. Alas... Martin's attempt to ban the baiting of animals fails. There will be no more successes in Parliament for him. Richard Martin would survive another 10 years, dying in 1834. But here we are, 200 years later, celebrating his success in Martin's Act, the first legislation in an elected Parliament for animal protection. There's so much more to learn about the history of the animal protection movement. In the next episodes, we'll hear more from those we've already spoken to, as well as from other advocates, lawyers and legal scholars from around the globe. 
we'll explore the Act's legacy up to and beyond the present. I hope you'll join me for the rest of the series. Thanks again to Peter Egan, Ryan Rhodes, Martin Rowe and the Culture and Animals Foundation. And for all the experts who have given their time for this episode and those that follow. You can listen to the full interviews with all of our experts, hear their origin stories, how they came to work for, study and advocate for animals on our website, chart2050.org. The Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate.